it's always like the where you break the rules that define the rules kind of situation. But I think in this case, it really did break all the rules and was just a fantastic book. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. My guest today is Ben Mesrick. He is the reigning cowboy of narrative nonfiction. He's the author of Bringing Down the House, the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas from millions, which was made into a movie called 21. He's also the author of The Accidental Billionaires, The Founding of Facebook, and A Tale of Sex, Money, Genius, and Betrayal. That movie was made into a little movie called The Social Network, which is notable to me because I was working for Hans Zimmer when that movie came out, and he lost the Oscar for Best Score to Trent Reznor (laughs) for that film. So he was very upset about it because Inception was kind of an amazing score, but Social Network was a little bit better. Ben Mesrick shares a scripter award with Aaron Sorkin. He is the only nonfiction author to have two adaptations of his work open at number one in the box office. And I would say two uh, so far because the Anti-Social Network is currently in production. That is another adaptation of his. It's going to be awesome. He is a writer and consulting producer on the show Billions. He is one of Hollywood's top 25 most powerful authors, and that list includes J.K. Rowling, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. So that's a pretty good list to be on. I could not nail this down, but he's written about 24 books. Yeah. He's written a lot of books. That sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the most recent one, which came out on February 2nd, 2022, is The Midnight Ride. We're going to talk about that later. It's pretty awesome. If you like history and thrillers and art and Boston, right up your alley. So the book that Ben Mesrick chose today is Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney. That's from Vintage Press, 1984. It's pretty amazing. It's in the second person. And Ben Mesrick, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Why did you pick this book? Yeah, you know, this book was a very formative book for me. I read it when I was in high school. This book is one of the most innovative energy driven. It captured the 80s. And I was sort of a child of the 80s. It made me want to be a writer. And I already knew I wanted to be a writer since I was about 12. But that was the book that sort of made me dream about what sort of writer I would be. To my detriment, to be honest, because that was a book that was very hard to copy. And it broke a lot of rules. And it set me down a path of attempting to become Jay McInerney or Bretty Snellis or one of these New York writers that you know, ended up not being the direction that I eventually went. But I think it's a special book. It's an intense book. You know, It's not a long book. It's a short book. But it, to me, is in many ways a perfect book. Did you find yourself trying to write in the second person after you read this book? Absolutely. And I have written one of my many books that I wrote as an ebook called Q, I wrote in the second person. But I tried it. And it's not just the second person. It's the second person present tense. So it's really an intense read. But what's weird is as you read it, you completely forget that it's the second person or present tense. It just becomes something that you're sort of seeing. And I definitely tried that. But in general, I think it taught me not to believe in the authority of of any of the rules that they've set down in writing. And I think that book to me also led me to Hunter S. Thompson in a lot of ways, so that when I started writing nonfiction, I really felt like there weren't any rules, that you can create your own rules as long as you create rules and then live by them. It's all right. And I think that to me was just very groundbreaking. And it was really interesting. You know, the whole idea of a celebrity author, 
I wanted to be Jay McInerney. I wanted to be that New York celebrity author running around. And there was a period in the 80s and even into the 90s where it looked like authors were going to become celebrities. And you would see them on talk <laughs> shows and you would see them, you know, gallivanting at Hollywood parties. And then I think what happened is real celebrities started to write books. And so publishing didn't need celebrity authors. They had real celebrity books. And I think that as a young writer, I wanted to be running around New York City with these cool writers. And as I got into the business and realized that doesn't really happen, at least not like it did in sort of that era, I had to become okay with that. I really remember a moment, this is sort of off topic, but my first BEA, so you know, the big book festival in New York, you go, and I was there for one of my books. And, you know, all the writers are in their little booths and booksellers are coming up and there's a few booksellers coming up to you. And then I see this huge crowd of booksellers over in the corner. And I'm like, oh, which author is that? And it was Billy Idol. <laughs> it's like, now I understand what is happening in publishing. Anyways, so Jay McInerney represented to me a type of author that I wanted to be writing the type of book that I wanted to write at a certain period in my life. That's really interesting. And I, I do remember that. I mean, I think authors are always on the cusp of celebrity. I mean, for, <laughs> right. for you and I, and for anyone who listens to this podcast, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is a celebrity and yeah. Douglas Hofstadter might be a celebrity, you know, I mean, just <laughs> these like sort of heady authors that reading people read, but you're right that, you know, why deal with an author when you can just get a celebrity and have someone right. write a book for them? Exactly. And that's really what happened. I mean, back in the 80s or 90s, if like some celebrity actor was going to write a book, nobody would pay any attention to it or they would joke about it. But now if you look at, you know, the bestseller list or you look at who's going on TV talking about books, it's all actors, <laughs> right? It's just been a shift. And it's our culture as a whole. We love celebrities, right? We love sort of the people who are in movies or are making music or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think Jay McInerney, Brady Snellis, you know, Candace Bushnell, there was a group in the 80s that were real life celebrity authors. And I think as a young kid, that's what sort of sent me in this direction. So do you think this book was about Jay McInerney? Was it like autobiographical? I think to some extent it was, you know, I know that they were living these crazy lifestyles in New York and they were very young, these writers. Now, I also, I sold my first book when I was 24. So I definitely broke in very young and identified with that whole thing. And yeah, they were young running around New York, living this life, you know, chasing models or whatever it is in the story. And so I do think that there was some personal stuff in that book for sure. Yeah, so much cocaine in the book, too. <laughs> I mean, you know, listen, there, that was a time period, right? It was yeah. the 80s, yeah. Yeah, the second person. So I must have read at least one other book in the second person. But when I'm talking to young writers, and people have heard me say it on this podcast, too, that I have a problem with the second person. I think every time you go into the second person, you're inviting the reader to say, no, not me. And you're right. making them second guess themselves. And what I used to say is that Proust was the only person who could pull it off. But I think we can <laughs> add Jay McInerney to that list because yes. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, he pulled it off. And, you know, even the first person I tell young writers to avoid, right? Because it's almost always something you fall back on because you have trouble creating that connection with your reader writing in third person. You know, a lot of first books are first person or a lot of amateur, I hate the word, but amateur writers write in the first person. It's just kind of a known thing. And almost everyone's first book is in the first person every young writer I ever meet with, when they hand in their first book, it's the first person because it's a fallback. It's easy. Second person, you shouldn't write because it's hard <laughs> because it doesn't, <laughs> it normally doesn't work. So you normally, when you're starting out as a writer, you should just write 
you know, he did just do it the way everyone else writes it and let your writing shine using those rules. But what I loved about McInerney is he just went for it and didn't care. And the energy level is what drives you through it. You know, these incredibly long sentence paragraphs and run on sentences and description that goes so over the top, but it completely works. It's always like the where you break the rules that define the rules kind of situation. But I think in this case, it really did break all the rules and was just a fantastic book. Oh, yeah, it's everything wrong according to the rules of how you're supposed to write a book in this book. Exactly. And you're right, yeah, run on sentences, sentences that just kind of trail off. But that also, <laughs> I don't know if you have any experience with cocaine, but that is like how a <laughs> coked up person talks right. and yeah. thinks, I think. On your point about authors becoming celebrities, you know, he works at a magazine and the, I guess, like senior sort of mascot of the magazine is this guy who knew Hemingway and right. Steinbeck and remembers back when these guys, they were their own kind of celebrities. And they were, I, I think those writers actually were a little bit more like you, where yeah. they wrote books that were popular, but they also made movies. And so they had a lot of power in the studio system. Yeah. Did you relate to that at all? Or did I you, absolutely did. did. <laughs> and the whole era of these sort of old aging dinosaurs from the previous era, like the idea that the magazines used to be the height of everything. I mean, the magazine world was the center of publishing. And, and, you know, the main character in this works essentially as a fact checker at The New Yorker. And that used to be an, a really important position. And a magazine like The New Yorker defined what writing was for an entire <laughs> culture. And we're way beyond that now. Yes. Substack defines what writing is as a culture now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, it's interesting. And so as a writer, yes, I myself sort of moved into the Hollywood sphere in a very big way from an early age. And I did that on purpose. I never set out to just write books. My goal was always a book as a platform for a film or a television show. And I've literally sold all of my books as movies on proposal before I've written any of my books. So going all the way back to bringing down the house and 21. And so that is how I've kind of modeled my career to some extent on sort of that marriage, because I think we're in a situation and in a world now where it, the content, it doesn't matter how it's consumed. What matters is you create something and other people can either see it, read it, view it. There's millions of different ways that they can consume it. And so from the very beginning of my career, I've always looked at it as the book as a platform. And so, yeah, that spoke to me also in a very big way. But just these characters from that period, like the Hemingway, the Fitzgeralds, and Hollywood usually was their demise, but they were certainly married to Hollywood. I mean, they wouldn't have existed without the idea of their projects being adapted or them writing screenplays as well. I would guess that at that time, in the, the time of Hemingway and Steinbeck, that the, the money was the same, like you could get a lot of money for selling an adaptation, but the quality of, yeah. of an adaptation was so much lower. I mean, you know, like your, your books are fantastic and the movies that are made out of your books are also fa differently fantastic, but I'm sure there's a 30s version of The Old Man in the Sea that's unwatchable today. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it is different today because you have these great artists who went into Hollywood. I mean, you have people like David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin, who are just geniuses. But you can also get a real crappy adaptation, too. I mean, it matters yeah. who you sell your project to and who is involved with shepherding it into sort of that other format, whether it's going to be good or not. But, you know, it is all about money to some extent. Why, you know, a lot of these authors moved into that realm was to make money. But, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to see. I mean, I've been around in this career for such a long time that I've actually seen shifts and, and I've been able to sort of write my way through different periods in writing. And I mean, the 90s airport thrillers were huge and you'd get on the plane and 
every single book would you'd see the, all the book covers. Remember that? Yeah. You'd see everyone reading the same book. Well, now of course that doesn't exist anymore. And so it just shifts and shifts and shifts. And then you saw Amazon, right? And you know, we could just go on about all the different eras, but the relationship to Hollywood is stronger now, I think, than even when I started. The book as a content, you know, as an IP or or creating content to then create a television show or a movie. This is a golden age right now of that. So it's been interesting to sort of see that develop. But it's, you know, Jay McInerney, Bryce Blaze Big City was made into a movie with Michael J. Fox. Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland, too. Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, so I think that McInerney, Bryce, those, those guys were part of creating content for big audiences, no matter how it was consumed. When you're working on a book, you're thinking of it as a pre-production document. In a lot of ways. I mean, <laughs> I'm really thinking I wouldn't write a book if I didn't sell the movie rights. That's interesting. So I write this 10-page proposal, take it out to Hollywood, get a deal, and then I write the book. And if I took that 10 pages out to Hollywood and nobody was interested in it, I wouldn't write the book. Ben, that's how I'm going to live my life from now on. <laughs> I mean, it's different, you know, and, and I've been afforded the opportunity to do that, obviously, because of 21 and the social network. We're successful enough that people will buy my stuff. But I have to say, it definitely gives me the energy to write the book because I know there's a production being made or at least attempting to be made. And it just makes it bigger. I mean, you know, the book business is kind of a crapshoot. You never know if people are going to pick up your book. You never even know how it's going to be distributed. You don't have control of a lot of things. But if a movie gets made, you know millions of people are going to hear about it. And so it gives you that extra push to write something as good as you can. As a composer who has worked on many indie films and gone to many indie film festivals, I can tell you that I don't assume millions of people are going to see the movies <laughs> that I work on. But, but yes, right. if Aaron Sorkin's, you know, teaming up with you and David Fincher's directing it and it's a book you wrote, yes, definitely millions of people are going to see it. Right. Yeah. And I guess also to just talk about the people who work on, on your project, you know, these are like some of the best storytellers in history, maybe, and certainly yeah. the best storytellers around today. And that was the thing when I moved to Hollywood just the way that people discuss any kind of media from a commercial to a feature film is they're always figuring out what is the best way to tell the story. What I see in your work is that you're writing a story and then like allowing these other really talented creators to help tell it in the way that they yeah. know how to do best. I mean, you, the only control you have as an author is who you sell it to. In all honesty, once you sell that project, you have no more veto power. I mean, you'll be on the movie set and you can be a producer and they'll maybe consult with you about this or that. But the reality is you've seated control of the project to someone else. So the big decision you make is who you sell it to. And, you know, it's not always about the money. It's really more about, are these people actually going to make it? Do they have the ability to make it? And is their artistic vision such that you're going to love what they make out of it? But that's the moment where you have control um, is saying yes. Can you tell us, uh, this is gets a bit wonky, but can you tell us just a little bit about the process of selling a book and like what an option means? It's different for every project and depending on how you're selling it. For me, usually the way it works is, you know, I write a 10 page proposal. So I know what the story is. I've talked to some of the characters. I've got enough in that 10 page proposal that you can see the book that I'm going to write out of it. Then your agent takes it out to different studios, usually producers attached to it and then attempt to sell it to a studio. Sometimes you have an element like a star or a writer or a director, but usually it's a producer of some sort. And they take it out to different studios. A number of things can happen. If there's an auction going on, meaning there's 10 different studios bidding on it, you could get a sale outright where they just buy the entire project and they can make the project. More likely is they option the project. So they give you 10% of whatever they're going to buy it for up front. And then they have a year, usually 12 months, sometimes 18 months to get it into production. If they don't get it into production in that 
time period, they can either re-option it for a year or they the rights return to you and you can resell it elsewhere. So, you know, at any given moment, I usually have 10 projects that have either been optioned or in some level of development. Sometimes they're coming back to me and then I'm going out with them again, the studios again, hoping to re-option them. When a studio either buys it or exercises that option, you get the big check and then they're making the movie. For that to happen, there needs to be an A-list actor involved usually or an A-list director involved. Now, this is different than the indie thing. The indie thing's a little different in that, you know, there's not as much money at stake, so there's less risk. So sometimes there may not be an A-list actor. There may not be a big director or whatever. They might be putting a project together and then taking it to festivals and hoping to sell it to a studio or something like that. But the way I usually do it is I'm selling a, a book proposal to a studio. I write the book while they're attempting to get big screenwriters involved and the screenwriters are writing it. And then we get to the point, hopefully, where they exercise the option and they're making the movie. Well, and then you get the book coming out like a year-ish before the movie, it seems like, if you do it that way, if you, if you time it, yeah. Well, it really depends on the project. Like, if you look at 21, that book came out way before the movie. I sold that book. Kevin Spacey signed on to make the movie. And back then, that was a really good thing, having Kevin Spacey <laughs> attached to your project. It's a yes. different time period now. But um, yeah, Kevin signed on and we sold the movie to Sony but it took five years to develop that movie. So the book came out and the book was a huge bestseller, which was amazing, but the movie came out you know, a few years later. The Social Network, on the other hand, I had written this 10-page proposal. Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher signed on to the proposal. So we were shooting the movie essentially just as I finished the book. So the book and the movie essentially came out at the same time. Now, the new movie I'm working on about the GameStop drama, my book was called The Anti-Social Network. The movie's called Dumb Money. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I was just on the set this week, and it stars Seth Rogen, Pete Davidson, Shailene Woodley, Paul Dano, Sebastian Stan from the Marvels movies. And it's directed by Craig Gillespie, who did I, Tanya, and Cruella, Pam and Tommy. He's, he's amazing. So that movie is coming out next fall, I think. I don't know if we have a, a date yet. So that book came out beginning of this year, maybe last year, and the movie will be out next year. So that's pretty quick. So you never know. Usually two years to three years is the quickest you could make it happen. Five years is the average, but I've had a year and, and, and two years and five years so far. TV can be quicker too. Depends on the, the situation. Billions wasn't based on one of your books, right? No, no. So Billions is uh, Brian Koppelman and uh, David Levian, who are awesome. Basically, uh, two years ago, I just got a tweet out of the blue from Brian. And he's like, have you ever tried writing for television? I love you in my writer's room. So I just joined in for season five. You know, <laughs> I've never written for TV before. I live in Boston and they're in New York. So I just started, took the train in every Monday and came home every Friday. And it was an absolute blast. It really was my first foray into just writing for television. So I was a writer and producer on that for a, a year, year and a half. It was, it was a blast. Wow. I mean, I've written a lot of books about the sort of characters that are on the show Billions. So I think that it fit what I do. I mean, I hang out with these guys, right? If you watch the <laughs> yeah. show. That's the people that I'm on a jet with all the time talking to these horrible human beings. And so I think they just, you know, <laughs> they knew that I knew these people for real. I'm sorry, did you did you just like throw away the line, those are the people that I'm on a jet with talking to these horrible human beings? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of friends <laughs> who are pretty interesting, let's put it that way. But I, I mean, I've sort of, my entire career has sort of been about following around these larger than life real characters who are usually billionaires or they pulled off some massive scam or fugitives <laughs> hiding on an island somewhere or Russian oligarchs or people like that. So 
over the past two decades, I've built a, an interesting group of friends <laughs> who are, <laughs> in, in some cases, are pretty awful human beings. Um, and then other places are amazing human beings who've just done incredible things. And so, yeah, I, I don't judge people. I, I, I like them all. Janet Maslin of the New York Times once called me the billionaire's best friend. And she didn't mean it as a compliment. She meant it as sort of this negative thing because I write these stories about these people who in some cases have done pretty awful things. And to me, they're heroes for the most part. So I don't know. I, I don't judge. I just want to be along for the ride. I should point out Janet is a friend of the podcast. Uh, her husband, Ben, was one of my first guests. Listen, she has viciously trashed my books for 20 years, <laughs> but in such wonderful ways that I really look forward to her reviews of my books. She writes these lavish two-page reviews destroying me <laughs> each time. And I enjoy it. Yeah. Let me just do a final question about Bright Lights, Big City. So one of the, the most poignant parts of Bright Lights, Big City to me was, and this is a spoiler, obviously people, you know, read this book. It'll take you five minutes. But at the end of the book, we realize that really what's been throwing this character into a tailspin is that his mom died. And you don't get this revelation until the last several pages of the book. And it's this beautiful scene of what is really his last conversation with his mom. And she wants to know about his sex life and that she feels like she's done some of that wrong in her life and she wants to know what he thinks of it. And so I want to just get deep with you for a second and say, what do you think? Like that made me think about like, what am I going to think about at the end of my life? I mean, it's an intense ending and it's really interesting because the whole book, it's a tragedy, but not really. It's exciting, but it, it's obviously this person is dealing with, you know, his marriage has fallen apart and his wife has just sort of walked off on him to do the Paris runway shows, you know, and it's this whole thing and he's obsessed with this mannequin he walks by the window every day because it's made out of his ex-wife and then it all comes down to this incredibly poignant moment where you know really what it's all about is, is he never got over the death of his mother and and that moment i don't know i don't know if that specific scene is what really draws me to the book more than you know the lifestyle and and that all stuff but yeah i mean i think you know it's hard not to think about the end, <laughs> you know, and what what you're going to really remember or what's going to matter to you or what are your regrets going to actually be as opposed to what you think your regrets are going to be as you live through life. Yeah. You know, the stupid things that you think are going to be important aren't as important. I don't know. I just recommend everyone to read that book. I think it's a book that I don't know that another generation or two generations from now people will, will ever read again because it, it's such a moment in time. But I don't know. There's a lot wrapped up into that book. The thing that made it really poignant for me was just that the thing that the mother latched onto at the end of her life was probably really unexpected even for her. Right. And the book is, as you pointed out, I mean, it's really, it's about grief and it's about characters who have undergone trauma. And, and as a reader, you don't really understand that until the very end, you know? Right. And yeah, I just thought that was interesting that like kind of whatever you think is going to be the thing that you want to have done differently at the end of your life. By the time you get to that moment, it's probably going to be different. Yeah. Speaking of characters that have undergone trauma and characters that have intense, sometimes really horrible and traumatic backstories, we're going to move on when we come back with you next week to talking about The Midnight Ride, which is a book full of flawed and hurt characters who uh, managed to do some amazing things and are very memorable. You know, I read it recently. I don't think there's any cocaine in that book. No, no cocaine. No, no, no cocaine. cocaine. All it's right. It's clean. It's a clean book. Yeah. <laughs> Trauma, no cocaine. Coming back next week to talk about The Midnight Ride. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you're thinking, 
I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super simple, takes a second, doesn't cost anything, and it really, really helps the show out. Every TV writer, aspiring TV writer who listens to this podcast wants to murder you right now. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs>